0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. Chang'anjie, or Long Peace Street, stretches across central Beijing. Along it are several important historical sites, such as Zhongnanhai. Tiananmen Square, and the Forbidden City, all important to Beijing's history as the center of imperial, republican, and then communist China. Jonathan Chatwin, in his book Long Peace Street, A Walk in Modern China, recently published in paperback, uses Long Peace Street as a way to present the modern history of Beijing and China. Starting at the road's beginning at the former Capital Iron and Steel Works, Chatwin takes the reader on a journey along Long Peace Street and through China's political history as it changes from a declining empire to a fast-growing and increasingly confident communist state. Jonathan Chatwin is a travel writer and journalist. His essays and articles have been published by the Saatchana Morning Post, the British Film Institute, the LA Review of Books, among other publications. He is also the author of Anywhere Out of the World, the work of Bruce Chatwin, published in 2012, as well as the host of the Southern Tour podcast, which examines China's reform and opening through the prism of Deng Xiaoping's legendary Southern Tour of 1992. In this interview, I'll ask Jonathan to chart this journey along Long Peace Street for us, talking about both the major sites we may have seen on our own journeys to Beijing, and some of the less well-known, yet equally interesting points along this road. We'll talk about some of his own personal experience of writing the book, and Beijing's relationship to its past. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today perhaps it's best to start with the star of the book, uh, Long Peace Street. What is this road? And what are, where does it start? Where does it end? How long is it? You know, can, can you tell, tell, tell us a bit more about about this road? Sure. So um,
1: the question of sort of where it begins and ends is, uh, as with Beijing itself, um, a little bit difficult to define. Uh, Chang'anjie is a relatively modern imposition. Those have you who've been to uh, Beijing will probably know that many of the imperial sites were laid out along a, a north-south axis that, that runs through the city. Um, as was common uh, with many Chinese cities, that was the traditional um, way of orienting uh, your city architecture. When the CCP took over in 1949, um, they, for a number of different reasons, end up joining together some of the parallel um, uh, West-East lines that run across the city, including uh, Chang'an um, which at the time that the CCP took over was was still a relatively, um, well, relatively short in the sense that it didn't extend very far beyond the original uh, city walls. Um, and the, the the CCP start to revise Beijing, um, partly in the model of Moscow. They were being advised by uh, the Soviets, and they turn Chang'an into a very wide. Um, street that runs through uh, the center of the city, in between um, Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City, partly because in 1959 they want to parade their uh, troops along it to celebrate the 10th anniversary of of their rule. Um, so it becomes a kind of symbol of the architectural revision of Beijing, um, the idea of the communists uh, declaring this as their capital, and as you mentioned um, in the intro, it, it's the site of a number of very significant uh buildings both from the imperial era but, but uh, perhaps more pertinently now um, from the communist era as the years have gone on and, and beijing has spread it's got longer and, and longer um and now uh, i start my walk as you as you mentioned at the old um beijing um the capital iron, iron and steel works which is no longer really there it's it's now the site of the twenty twenty two Winter Olympics is the headquarters for that. And they've extended chang'anjie out across the river to the west and to the east, it kind of ends up turning into a bit of a bit of a highway which which then drifts down to Tianjin. So uh, again, sort of metaphoric of the city's spread, chang'anjie just gets longer and longer. Um uh, and it's probably worth saying that the title of the book Long Peace Street is a very literal um interpretation of the of the name, it's generally translated as the Avenue of Eternal Peace. Um, But for for a number of reasons, one of which was that I wanted to give the sense of this being a long walk. um, I chose that perhaps uh, more direct and pithy title of Long Peace Street.
0: So I guess actually how, how walkable is this street? Is it possible or maybe even advisable for someone to, to walk the same path that you did throughout the book? I think one of the interesting things about doing the the walk um,
1: was me reflecting on methods of transport in in Beijing. And, and walking had, had has long been, you know, back to the imperial days, not a very popular method of getting around the city. Uh, partly because in the in the sort of imperial days, the the city streets were were famed for their dust, and when it rained, for their mud and the kind of rutted tracks that that, that went along them. Um, I have always found walking cities to be an excellent way of of getting to understand them. Um, I lived in Beijing and and greatly enjoyed walking around it. Um, And I think it is still at its center, certainly the older parts of the city where the old alleyways or Hutong uh, exist. It's it's a city that rewards, in my opinion, walking. And I was partly inspired by something um, Simone de Beauvoir uh, talked about in her book, when she visited in 1955, a book called The, the Long March, where she talks about um, walking a city, kind of giving this immediate, irrecusable experience that that really helps you to get to grips with a place. I would say that Chang'an Xie as a, as a way of walking Beijing is, is not, um, it wouldn't be my first recommendation for visitors to the city for, for a number of reasons. I think, as I said, it's it's symbolic of this, uh, revision of the city that happened under CCP rule, particularly in the first decade of the 1950s, um, it's very long and straight and broad, and a lot of the architecture along it now, which you know, more recent architecture is kind of bland. Um, some of it, perhaps, you know, associated with uh, the movement of uh, listeners might be familiar with this idea of, of Western star architects coming in, you know, big Western architectural firms coming in and building showcase, uh, buildings. Um, but a lot of, a long, you know, it's 19 miles that I walked of it. long stretches of it are through bits of Beijing that are, that don't appear on many tourist maps, put it that way. Um, so for me, I mean, th- 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 there was a kind of appeal to that because it was a little bit more interesting than perhaps, and, and less, less well-known perhaps than some of the, uh, some of the site sites on the North South axis, like the Drummond Bell Tower, the Temple of Heaven, places like that. But it wouldn't be, as I say, it wouldn't be my recommendation of uh, uh, the first place to visit. The, the other reason I, I just quickly say is I walked in August, which is a terrible time of year to do anything outside in, in Beijing. Um, and uh, people, you know, I, I met people along the way and, and they would ask, you know, got into conversations. And everybody that I met all the Beijingers I met and told them what I was doing just looked at me like I'd gone completely, completely mad. Um, and it's true that um, if you are going to walk it that you've got to pick your pick your season more um, more carefully than i did
0: yeah I, I definitely know the know the trials and tribulations of trying to walk a city in the middle of summer um, <laughs> but, well, well there was a lot in that answer, and i'm going to pick out a few a few specific points. Um, the first is, is you kind of talked about how um, the the city was kind of re I'm probably paraphrasing, but kind of remade when the when the CCP took over. Mm. Um, and maybe mm. it's worth kind of taking a big picture of view here and asking: Well, first of all, like, has Beijing always played the central role in modern Chinese history? And when do we start to see, or and if not, when do we start to see a shift of political, economic, cultural importance to Beijing? Sure.
1: I mean, Beijing. Uh, the, the name of Beijing means Northern Capital. Uh, and it is an unusual it's an accident of history i suppose you could say that about every capital city to some extent but uh, beijing is an unusual choice as a capital uh it doesn't have a, a, a major river or port um it's actually um th- they have had for a long time problems with uh, water supply in beijing it sits on a pretty arid plain um it's quite far distant from the traditional economic and cultural heartland of china um so particularly the area where you know we can call it Jiangnan you know, south of the Yangtze, which was really for, for a long period of time, you know, the the, the economic, you know, and cultural driver of, of Chinese culture. So it's an unusual choice. It ends up there really because the nomads from the north um, establish it finally in 1279 as a as a national capital, and then it looks like it's going to go back when the Ming. Uh, take over. It looks like it's going to go back to, to Nanjing, which is the name of Nanjing means southern capital. Um, uh, and you know the, the capital is re-established there and, 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 a, and a palace is built. Um, and then um, the, uh, the man who will become known as the the Yongla emperor, rests control back um, and and then restores Beijing um, as the national capital. and it's been located there with, with a, a brief interruption um, during the, the nationalist era in the 20th century um ever since and i think it's um you know not only was it an odd choice perhaps originally uh, you know a geographical um anomaly in some ways having a having a, a, a capital so far north of the um uh, the the cultural and economic heartland of the country but when the communists took over in 1949 again it it seems an unlikely choice for them you know the, the, the ccp have been all about overthrowing the feudal rule of uh, past uh, centuries. And and of course, you know, Beijing in its physical form, it is an imperial city. It represents that old order in the way that it is constructed and built and the way that it is walled off. I mean, you know, the imperial city was, which sat at the center of Beijing, was, you know, protected space. So in a way, it's a surprising choice f- for them. And as I say, then they get, for the first decade in particular, get on with, uh, refashioning under the uh, with, with advice from these thousands of Soviet advisors here in China at the time, they got on with refashioning Beijing into some sort of version of a socialist capital, um, and, and tear down. Um, as listeners will probably know, tear down a lot of the imperial um, architecture that, that existed.
0: Um, so the the centerpiece of Long Peace Street. I mean, both the street itself, but also your book, is. Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City. Um, Mm. Do you see, I guess, both of these sites, you know, both the square and the Forbidden City, um, having the same centrality in Beijing's and even China's history?
1: I think if you, to start with Tiananmen Square, what's quite interesting about that space is that the juxtaposition of what the square represents with what the Forbidden City, which is just across the 10 lanes of Long Peace Street um, to the north represent. It's quite an acute juxtaposition. And I mean, Beijing and China generally is sort of full of these interesting juxtapositions. But um, Tiananmen Square was, uh, until uh, communist years, not a square. It was a sort of T-shaped, well, it had a gate in the middle and a kind of corridor going through ministries and sort of government functions either side. Um, And... You're partly as I say, inspired by the, the urban plan of Moscow, in in the nineteen fifties, Tiananmen Square is turned into this um, kind of symbolic heart to the city. Um I always find it an interesting comparison to the city squares of of Europe, for example, these the idea of the piazza with commerce and trade, and of course listeners who've been to Beijing will know that that, that is not what Tiananmen Square is. It was built as a kind of with a ceremonial function in mind, which is partly to do with the parades that happen um, now every, every decade along it. Um, It's quite, um, well, it was at one time the biggest public square in the world, although uh, there's a, I think in Dalian now has that honor. Um, It has Mao's mausoleum at the center of it, sitting on that north to south axis that I'm, Axis that I mentioned, and that north-south axis was traditionally associated with, um, uh, yeah, the imperial map of Beijing. So, citing Mao's mausoleum and his body bang on the, that line, um, it, you know, is, is symbolically significant. I think it, you know, it, it's a place that, um, you know, perhaps we'll talk about the, the protests um, that, that uh, the square gives its name to. Um, it's a place that for visitors to Beijing is 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 often the first, you know, uh, number one on the itinerary. Um, and I always find it, you know, an interesting experience talking to people who've just gone to uh, Tiananmen for the first time because it's not a particularly, you know, it's difficult to access. It's one of the most heavily policed public spaces in the world. Now you have to pass through a number of checkpoints to get onto it. Um, and then when you're there, you know, it's sort of, what are you doing there? There's nothing, you know, you can have a look at some of the monumental architecture that surrounds it, the socialist realist um, architecture of the 1950s. But it's, as I say, sits in contrast to what we often think of a city public square as being. So it's an odd, it's an odd space, I think. And it's become um, all the more <laughs> curious as, you know, in, in recent decades um, it's, it's, a site of incredible nervousness for the Chinese Communist Party, and 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 you you sense that when you're there.
0: Um, I think we'll return to a discussion of the protests. I think later on in this interview, um, because right now I think I want to talk about. You can you can see potentially three kind of broad phases of modern Chinese history. You have the imperial era right before the revolution. Um, so things like the the Box Rebellion, things like that. Then you have the post-revolution Republican period, the presidency of Yuan Shikai, um, and so on. And then, of course, you have the 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 Communist era um, after ni- nineteen forty nine. How do you see each of these eras reflected in in Long Peace Street?
1: I think, in terms of the imperial era, what's interesting uh, about Long Peace Street is that it. It is a subversion of the Imperial and a very deliberate subversion of the imperial plan for a city which is set out in the second century BCE, um, which which talks about the north-south axis having kind of preeminence in a in a Chinese city. Um, so to build uh, the main thoroughfare of the city on that east-west axis is a deliberate act um, of contradiction in a way, and of course what happens as they build it, um, and extended as they um dismantle more and more of the imperial architecture that sits along it um so for example at the center of uh where Tiananmen Square now is um and the road sits between that and, and the Forbidden City there used to be a number of, of gates uh that have been uh torn down for example um obviously later on um the, the city walls uh disappear to build Beijing's first um subway line, underground line. Um, so the, street, the story of the street tells of the Imperial area is actually to, to some extent, one of t- destruction because um, a lot of what you, you will get to places like um, Tianguomen, for example, which is the name of, of a gate originally punched through um, it's, it's slightly more recently uh, by the Japanese, but one of the old gates in the, in the, in the, in the old city wall it's not there anymore because uh, the, the second ring road um, is there instead. But there's a, sort of these architectural echoes as you walk down it of things that used to exist. Um, there are some other markers of the imperial history. So, uh, Diaoyutai, which is um, is a kind of state guesthouse now, it was co opted by the CCP, but that has um, imperial origins. Um, and obviously, you mentioned Zhongnanhai, which is the uh, sort of party headquarters equivalent to. Sort of the White House, I suppose, is, 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 a, is a comparison people uh, might understand, um, and that uh, was again part of uh, the Imperial City and um, has a long imperial history before the CCP take it over as their as their headquarters. So there are things that still are extant on the road, but a lot of it, you know, a lot of the time I spent walking along it, there was a reflection of, of, and and, and I think that's a the theme of the book: what has been lost and destroyed in that era in terms of the post um imperial era so the republican bit of chinese history that kind of brief um that brief period there's there's some interesting you know little known bits of of history from that you know i i I like to share when i do talks uh, about the book the photo of Tiananmen gate with a picture of Chiang Kai-shek a portrait of him hanging from uh the gate where Mao Zedong uh now has his portrait. Um, but prior to that, Yuan Shikai, who who takes uh, control, um, you know, just just after the the end of the imperial era, uh, he actually bases himself in Zhongnanhai. So he's he's the sort of person who establishes that as a center of political control in the in the post imperial years. Um, and Chang'an's ye is, begins to change under the Republican in the Republican era. Era so trams are installed, for example, along it. Um, and there are sort of tentative steps taken to, to modernize the city. Um, in terms of then the communist era, I think the most important thing to say about that is that Chang'an was seen as a showcase um, for um, the socialist realist architecture of, of the 1950s. And in particular, some of what are called Beijing's 10 great buildings. So these were big architectural projects that the CCP undertook running up to the 1959 10 uh, year anniversary of their, their rule. Um, so um, examples uh, would be the, the military museum, which sits on, on um the, the railway station, just to the east of Tiananmen Square, um, the museum, what is now uh, the National Museum on, on, on the east side of the square, the Great, um, the Great Hall of the People on the western side. These were all big um, landmark projects designed to as I say sort of symbolize Beijing's uh, new life as this socialist capital um, and Changan was seen as a showcase for these for these big buildings so those, those are probably the, the most obvious markers of this
0: what are some let's say lesser-known sites you'd like to highlight um, from your book you know whether as things to see or historical markers or just something that you think is just plain interest. Sure. I mean,
1: I think uh, I perhaps haven't done a terribly good job of selling Tie as a as a destination for visitors to Beijing. And I, I think uh, some of the um, the most interesting bits of it are slightly more hidden away, perhaps uh, some of the side streets. If you come down uh, the eastern side of Tiananmen, for example, you can walk through what's left of Beijing's old, old legation quarter. So this is with the area where foreigners and particularly diplomats were uh, were confined and some very interesting you know some of it has been unfortunately or a lot of it has, has been has been destroyed but there are still um little architectural reminders of, sort of some of those um some of those years and you know that the, the diplomatic residences and compounds were often built as uh kind of echoes of um european or home styles of architecture so you get a really nice kind of mix of um, different uh, Western styles, and, and as I say, there, there is there is still enough left there that you can get a sense of that. The other place that I often recommend to people um, that's worth visiting, which is which sits um, right on changan Tanganyi, is the old Imperial Observatory, uh, which is um, on the eastern wing of the street, and next to that 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 old. Um, Part of the city wall I mentioned the, the gate Yangguan, um, and you know a lot of people it's very easy to kind of miss because it's only it's only relatively small um, uh, and it's a site where it was built in the southeastern reaches of the old um, Tata city, the old um, inner city of, of Beijing, um, uh, and has a very long long history. Um, at, what what's what's interesting to to me is is that um so it, you know it goes back to the, the 13th century that site does um uh well there's a site nearby just just to the north of it where it, where it was originally but um so very long history but the if you go and look at the uh, observatory in, instruments that are there they're actually designed by a flemish Jesuit missionary called Ferdinand Verbiest who um in 1673 is commissioned by the emperor to kind of renovate and redesign and make more accurate instruments for this, uh, observatory. Um, and then those instruments, when the Boxer Rebellion happens at the beginning of the 20th century, they get, they get taken off to, uh, Germany and, and, and France by the, uh, the troops that come to, uh, to, to, rescue, uh, the foreigners who are held under siege in the legation quarter. So there's quite a storied history there to, um, which tells a little bit about some of the interaction between the west and the east that happened perhaps earlier than than we often think about in 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 the west um it's also quite an evocative space because it's one of the last bits of the of the wall it sits up on a on an old fragment of of the wall so that's it's well worth uh yes popping in and 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 seeing it um and it gives uh, it's one of the few places you get a bit of a view as well Beijing famously flat, and walking along Chang'an Square, it's sometimes hard to get your, get your bearings. Um, the, the observatory is a, is a useful useful stopping point
0: from that respect as well. So I think one more one more question about about the history. Um, the most recent event you discuss in your book, beyond things that happened a few years ago, um, is the uh, is the Tiananmen Square protests and the crackdown that followed. Um, I, I wonder if you could just share a few thoughts about how you see those protests and their place in understanding kind of China's modern history and its modern development.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because it was one of the parts of the book I think I found hardest to write, partly because it's something that it was one of the few things I was touching on that I knew general readers would already have knowledge of um it was something that was an inevitable part of the story not not just because Tiananmen is at the center of of the street in the center of the book but actually although the protests are, are known by the name of the square a lot of the a lot of the conflict uh went on actually on the western and, and eastern reaches of Chang'an Tie. um so um that was a, you know, that that was always going to be, you know, places like Musidi out to the west, which was um, the site of a kind of pitched battle. Um, that was always going to be something that the street threw up as an historical resonance. I think that what I tried to do to some extent was was contextualize the nineteen eighty nine protests with a little bit of the history of of the kind of couple of decades before and talk about Tiananmen itself and Chang'an-tie generally as a site of, of political protest because you know Tiananmen in the old days before it was uh, the, the communist square so uh, May, May 4th 1919 it's a site of uh, it's a site of protest you've got um down out to the to the west um on Chang'an-tie which in uh, 1978 is the site of the democracy wall uh, movement um, a little bit a couple of years before that in April of 1976 um, there are uh, protests there after the death of Zhou Enlai um, and Zhongnanhai itself the the gate there which leads into the uh, the party compound has been a place where people have come to petition and protest as well so I think. One of the downsides of focusing solely on the 1989 protests is that, it, 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 well, I think there's two things. First of all, I think that often the national scale of those protests is overlooked. So the, the fact that they were it wasn't just Beijing where those protests were happening, they were happening in many, many cities all over China. But also this idea that there were other precursor protests to it in the 80s as well, and obviously going back to the, the 70s. Um, so I tried to contextualize a little bit, um, just to broaden perhaps people's understanding of, of that, of that movement, but it's a, it's obviously a hugely significant moment in China's political and social history. Um, and yes, uh, it's never, it's never an easy subject to, to, to write about, I think, um, for lots of different reasons, but I, um, I tried to, uh, give it the space it deserved, but also, as I say, kind of give it a, a sense of of historical context at the same time.
0: So how did you decide to blend your own personal experiences with Beijing with your discussion of, of Chinese history? Um, the chapter that comes to mind is the chapter on the revolutionary secretary, sorry, no, sorry, re- 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 the revolutionary cemetery, sorry, um, mm. the, um, uh, and, and how you blended your own visit to the cemetery with the history that's wrapped up um, in that site, so I guess as you were planning and writing the book, how how did you decide to to blend your personal experiences with the historical narrative?
1: Yeah, I think you know, obviously, we've talked a lot about the history that is involved in the street and and, and Beijing um, today, but I, I think it is something that I really wanted the book to do was to capture the sense of being in the physical space of the city. I did the walk in two thousand and sixteen. Um, and I really wanted it. To, you know, I'm a my background is uh, academically studying uh, travel writing, um, and I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the power that travel writing has to to help um, people understand uh, and experience uh, places that they might not otherwise visit. So to me, it was really important that it captured a sense of that physicality of moving through the city. And I spent a long time trying to think about how to do that the reason i picked um changanjie well there you know number of reasons obviously it's hugely historically resonant as we've as we've established but it's also manageable in a way that you know i travelled and i still well until until last year uh struck i travel a lot in, in china and um it is you know it's a truism and it's a cliche to say you know how how big it is uh, you know and as a a Western writer writing about a place that is not you know, my, my own. Um, I'm very conscious of not overstating my um, kind of knowledge and insight into a place. So it seemed to me a manageable slice of the city. Um, I lived in Beijing, so uh, I, I knew the city already pretty well. Um, and I think it ends up being a bit of an odd hybrid, the book in in that sense that it is a kind of melding of history and personal experience. But I hope that through that it gives um, obviously a kind of foundational insight into um, you know the history of Beijing is the history of China for, certainly for the last several centuries. Um, so hopefully it gives some insight into that. But also, I just think that experience of being on the ground, Walking through uh, urban space in China is something that I never tire of. Um, It's still the way that I explore um, cities that I or places I haven't been to. I try and I try and spend as much of my time on foot as I can. Um, And so, yeah, I I wanted that sense of uh, the sensory experience to be, you know, a preeminent part of the book. Um, So I worked quite hard to to try and integrate. To try and balance the two but it was yeah it was it was quite a challenge i think
0: so so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna quote a line from from your book uh from near the end of the book um where you write modern beijing is a mess a glorious mess noisy endlessly sprawling confounding to navigate and echoing with the muffled shouts of those who chafed against its impositions physical spiritual political Rather than hearing those voices, the city seemed instead to rouse itself now only for the promise of more change, change without considered thought, without anything but a call to action, picking up of hammers and pickaxes and drills, and another new building, another new road, another lost hutong, another created layer of concrete and steel ringing around it. So Beijing's not alone in this. I mean, lots of major cities have a um, sometimes strained, sometimes distant relationship uh, with with their history. Um, I know we in Hong Kong had this discussion a lot. Um, but I guess, how do you see Beijing now as the capital city of an increasingly confident China, um, of a very more economically developed, a richer China? Um, how do you see Beijing's relationship with its history, as expressed in physical sites, like the ones you talk about in your book? Um, how do you see that relationship changing or or developing? I think it's 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 a
1: very good question. I, I am always acutely aware of the danger of, of lapsing into a kind of Western nostalgic perspective on on old Beijing um, and the reality of of much of the housing. So when the communists take charge in nineteen forty nine, Beijing was in a pretty dilapidated state. Um, a lot of houses didn't have any running water. Electricity was was patchy. And 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 you know even in more recent years, many of the, the Hutong and the Sehoyuan, the, the courtyard houses along them, were not the kind of glorious courtyard houses of imperial history. They had become, uh, they're often referred to as Dazayuan, these kind of big, messy courtyards occupied by multiple families very often. Um, so there is an obvious need for regeneration in any city. Um, and and part of that, I guess, inevitably is is involves involves destruction, um, and refashioning. I think the problem with Beijing, as I allude to in that extract, is that there has very rarely been a coherent plan, um, coherent in the sense of kind of well uh, well thought through for the long term. I think in terms of what they want Beijing to look like and be like. The Hutong, which, you know, numbered in, you know, several thousand when they, when the communists took over the city have now dwindled, um, into, you know, a few hundred, they are being, uh, in recent years, the process of destruction has stopped and they have started to be kind of re, uh, well, they, they talk about them being bricked up where these small shops and restaurants that existed along them have been, uh, closed and the. The the way they look from the outside has been restored to some sort of sort of faux Qing version, Qing Dynasty version of of themselves. Um, So in a way, although I have you know there is there there are still issues around that. That's a better solution than destroying them. But the the thing that I find you know thinking about Beijing's recent past um, hard, hard to reconcile is the fact that there were. Aspects of the city that could have been preserved, particularly the walls. I think, which you know, other Chinese cities, uh, Xi'an perhaps most well known, uh, did manage to incorporate and still have, um, you know, traffic flowing through them. For example, and there's a quite a famous plan put forward by uh, the Chinese architect Liang, Liang Sicheng, where he envisaged the walls becoming public spaces with kind of tea houses and gardens along them. And it's hard not to kind of look at the what they built in the end instead, which was the second ring road, which is this enormous sort of motorway that runs around the city. It's hard not to look at that and think, what a shame that, you know, what a shame that wasn't how Beijing ended up. I think the challenge now for them, you know, it's an interesting phase to look at Beijing as a global city. They have imposed a population cap on on the capital as they have on on shanghai as well um, they are trying to ship out the government are some of what they call the non-capital functions um, these are things like uh, e- education healthcare um to other parts of uh the nearby satellite cities um and they're building um a brand new city to the southwest called uh, xiongan uh, which will be connected via high-speed rail to, to the capital um so there is a sort of feeling at the moment that that's the plan that they have settled on um, the restoration of the old bits, very much in keeping with Xi Jinping's kind of vision of a kind of glorious past. So I think that's something that has changed and you see it in, in the Forbidden City too, where there's a lot more effort being put into presenting a version of China's glorious past before the so-called century of humiliation, which begins in the middle of the, uh 19th century. Um so that you know in terms of the historical architecture, that seems to be the direction they're traveling in. Obviously to the east, they've built this big modern city with skyscrapers and 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 shopping malls and all that sort of thing. And then yeah, you've got these satellites sitting out out one, one to the east and one to the southwest, which are gonna a- alleviate some of the the stress and strain on the city. Um, so it'll be fascinating. I mean one of you know I I I uh I wrote the book I did the walk in 2016 and, and wrote it in the subsequent years. And there's always a new story to be told about urban China. Um, you know, I'm working a lot on the Pearl River Delta area. And there's always a new, new government idea, a new initiative. Um, and it's a fascinating thing to watch. But yes, you hope that that period of destruction, kind of willful and, and to some extent mindless destruction, has at least paused for the
0: moment. So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Jonathan Chatwin, author of Long Peace Street, A Walk in Modern China. Jonathan, one actual final question. Um, what's next for you and where can people find your work? Um, so
1: the book is literally, uh, we're talking on the 6th of April and, and uh, the book is, is coming out today in paperback. Um, so, uh, and it's available, I think, everywhere today uh, in paperback. I'm currently working on. Um, you mentioned I, I post a podcast about Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour, so I'm currently trying to write a book about that journey that he made. I retraced um, that journey uh, in the summer of 2019, um, and you know, you mentioned '89 as this sort of pivotal uh, moment, and 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 Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour of 1992 it comes a few years after that. And is kind of a, a reopening of uh, of China economically after a few years of retrenchment. So it's a fascinating moment in Chinese history. So I'm trying trying to get that written um, at the moment. Uh, but people can find me on Twitter. I'm at JM Chatwin. Um, and yes, uh, the book is pretty widely available. I hope so. Uh, I do, do encourage people to try and get hold
0: of a copy if they can. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick RI Gordon. It's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe. If you're listening to the Asian Review Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Raza Mir, author of Murder at the Mushaira. But before then, thank you, Jonathan, for joining me today. Thanks for having me.